Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm glad you all are here tonight. I'm very, very thankful to Dr. Mills for the opportunity to uh, begin a series that he's starting on Wednesday nights. You know, this looks really familiar here. Same pulpit, uh, a few more speakers in place than there used to be, but uh, all in all, it feels pretty familiar being right back here 31 years in the same place, and uh, I'm really, really thankful to be getting to know many of you, uh, younger members, new members. I'm really, really delighted to be able to speak to you tonight. Now, Dr. Mills is beginning a series, I think next Wednesday night, uh, an overview of the Old Testament. I'm here to do the overview of the overview. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, to take a bird's eye view from about 31,000 feet at uh, what's below at the Old Testament. Uh, he felt like it was important to have some introductory remarks um, to basically talk what the Old Testament is, and then he's going to get into specific books and go all the way through the Old Testament over the next several months. Um, I, I'm honored that he would ask me to do that because normally you would think the person that is going to do the study would like to do the introduction too, so they will agree with each other, but we've talked about it, and uh, he and I are really, we're, we're together, and we, we agree. Um, by the way, if you say one more time about my socks, I'm going to come stick them in your mailbox out in the office, and you will have to wear these things because you wouldn't dare re-gift these socks. So... You know, black and pink, and the socks are black and pink. So I don't want to hear any more about my socks. I had on conservative socks this morning, and just to get you, I thought I would wear these tonight. So let that be a warning to you. Okay. The Old Testament, as many of you know, um, was written over a period of 1,000 to 1,200 years uh, by at least 25 authors. Now, the whole Bible, as uh, most of you know, has 66 books and was written by roughly 40 authors, but the Old Testament by about 25. We're going to talk more about this in just a few minutes, but there is one theme that unites the Old Testament, every book, and unites the Old Testament within the New Testament, and that is redemption salvation, redemption. My wife likes to use the expression, the scarlet thread of redemption ties the whole thing together. And you'll see more about that as we go along. Let's, let's be very clear and understand that the Old Testament, more than the first half of your Bible, it's about the first three-fourths of your Bible, the Old Testament, like the New Testament, is the inspired Word of God. Paul couldn't have been more clear than what he said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired of God. means literally it is God-breathed. He breathed into the lives of those that he chose as his, as his writers uh, use them, use their personalities, their writing styles, but he breathed it out. And, and may I say that 
this is both a record of God's revelation and it is revelation itself. Now, the word revelation means an unveiling. It means that something is being rolled away or rolled aside so that we can see clearly. The, the revelation is the last book of the Bible, and that's what that word means, apocalypsis, an unveiling, a revealing so that we can see what is to come. The question is, why do we need revelation? So why do we need the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement, as well as the New? Well, it's because there are some things in this life that we can figure out by reason. We can figure those things out by ourselves. There are other things, like in the spiritual realm, that we have to have revealed to us. We cannot comprehend them on our own. We could not dream them up on our own. So they have to be opened to us. And that's what revelation, that's why God has given us his word. The Old Testament is the story, and, and this is as brief as I know how to put it. The Old Testament is the story of, of God's creation of all that is, his choice of a nation, the nation of Israel, how he blessed them, in order to reveal himself to the rest of the world and how he prepared the world for the coming of a personal Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when God chose Israel, of course, it, it followed a pretty ugly pattern. God chose them by his own grace. No particular reason he should have shown this, chosen this nation of people. But he chose them he blessed them. He said, I will bless you if you obey me, worship me, follow me. And for a while, they did obey him and follow him. And then they began to listen to the world, to the pagans. They sinned. They stepped out of his pattern for them and out of his blessing. And God warned them. He never judged anyone without warning them. He warned them. They didn't repent. He judged them, generally through another nation. And after a time, then they would repent, and God would forgive them, pardon them. He would bless them again, and they would walk with him, and then the pattern would be repeated. They would sin. He would warn them, then judge them. They would repent. He would bless them. God always remained true to his people, but they didn't always remain true to him. The story of the Old Testament, like that of the whole Bible, is the study of God's grace and of God's graciousness and how he prepared the world for salvation through Christ. Remember Galatians chapter 4. It says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his servant made of a man, uh, made, of man, made of man, made under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. The whole thing is preparing the way, foreshadowing the way for Christ. And I will tell you, if you look carefully with the understanding that the Spirit gives, you can find the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in every book of the Bible. 
Before I retired from here, I preached a, a series on Wednesday nights or taught a series through the book of Esther. I've repeated it a couple of times in interim pastorates. Now, the name God never appears in the book of Esther. But if you look carefully, there are pictures of Jesus in the book of Esther. It's all about preparing the world for the coming of the Savior. Now, the Old Testament is divided generally into five sections. The first five books, which we call the Pentateuch, is known as the books of the law. The second division, 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Samuel, Joshua, Judges, divided and called the history. The next few books, Ecclesia, or, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are known as the books of wisdom and worship. Some people say wisdom and poetry. I call it wisdom and worship. The next section is prophets. What are they called? The major prophets and the minor prophets. Why are they called minor prophets? Because they're less important? No, because they're shorter. Simple as that. Just as inspired, just as important as all of the other books. B.B. Warfield was a, a pastor, a Reformed pastor, great Bible scholar, great Bible translator, and he once said, the Old Testament is a room fully furnished but dimly lit. All the elements of the gospel are to be found in the Old Testament, but it took the coming of Christ to fully reveal the truths that had already been there. The New Testament contains the fulfillment of what was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, you will find as you read and study the Old Testament that a lot of it is based on the principle of progressive revelation. And understand me carefully, that doesn't mean that God was evolving. It means that people were growing in their ability to understand what he had already revealed. And so he gave them more and more and more. It's like peeling the seal off of a pre-cooked dinner. You open it, and you open it a little more, and you open it. It's, it's progressive revelation. He taught us more, or gave us more, as we were able to understand it. When I think of the Old Testament, you may, you may have a different idea, but when I come to the Old Testament, I think first of how Jesus our Lord is pictured and how he is prophesied in the Old Testament. For example, I don't know how anyone could read Isaiah chapter 53 and not realize that all the, the, the descriptions of someone that was beaten and had many stripes put on him and took the iniquities of us all, I don't know how anyone could read that and not see that is Jesus Christ it's talking about. Israel, the nation of Israel, still likes to think that they are the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Not so. It is Jesus Christ, ultimately, that is fulfilled by Isaiah chapter 53. My best friend is an expert in Jewish evangelism. 
And Isaiah 53 is where he always starts when he's trying to share the gospel with a Jewish person. And he said, I'm able to explain to them how it was Jesus that bore our sins and our sorrows, that was beaten with many stripes. So I I like to look for the pictures of Jesus. Maybe you look for other things. Maybe you like the stories or the law, but I look for pictures. And the Old Testament showed why people then needed a Savior and why we today still need a Savior. And how God, when the time was perfect, gave us that Savior. Again, when the time was full, I want you to think about this. The Old Testament was the only Scripture that Jesus had. But he preached the Old Testament and the pictures of salvation that were there and the need for faith. And the Old Testament was the only Scripture the Apostle Paul had. I don't know, but I doubt that he sat in a jail cell at night and thought, Wow, I'm writing down the rest of the New Testament. This will be read thousands of years from now. I I don't know that, but I I don't think he did. But it came to be regarded as inspired by God. So that in itself would make it important to understand the Old Testament. 75% of our Bible is the Old Testament. Much of the New Testament is interpreted in light of the old. Now, may I make a suggestion to you that each week as you go through the study with our pastor, the study of the Old Testament, that you try to read ahead. You ask him at the end of a session, what are we going to cover next week? And you try to read the book. I warn you, sometimes he's going to take two books in a night or a book and a half. And that could be a problem when you're trying to read through Isaiah or Jeremiah. There's a lot there. But you'll be okay on the minor prophets. I promise you, you will. But try to read ahead, and it will mean so much more to you if you're able to do that. Well, I want to establish some basic truths. Remember, we're looking from 31,000 feet, and we're trying to figure out what are some of the basic, essential beliefs about the Old Testament that we need to start with. I'll come to some of the themes of the Old Testament in a few minutes, and some of it will be a bit of an expansion on what I'm going to share now. But these are some things we need to have established. First of all, we need to have it established that it is inspired. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is exactly what we need for sin, for for. Uh, conviction and for encouragement and so forth. All of it is God-breathed, so it's all trustworthy. The very words of Scripture are inspired. That's why we can talk about verbal inspiration. doesn't mean there was this voice that was dictating to their secretary, and the secretary's over there saying, no, that's not what it means. It means that God inspired the very words that were given and not just the ideas that were given. That's why we can say it is inerrant, it is infallible. 
Yes, it was written down over a period of many years. Yes, there were many different authors, but God protected his word over all of that time as it was transmitted, written down, and then transmitted from one generation to another. He protected it. And yes, there were many writers, but there is that one theme. Again, the scarlet thread of what? Redemption. The scarlet thread of redemption sewn through, tying all together, all of the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll point that out in a few minutes. Second thing we have to get straight is this matter of creation. It has to be established. Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you just stop with in the beginning, God, you've got a pretty good foundation right there because it establishes his eternal nature, the fact that he's always been there. Nobody made him. I don't understand that. It's one of the things we'll understand in heaven. But he's always been there, and he always will be there. The Old Testament does not explain anywhere how God went about that, but it assumes that it is a fact. The fact that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth establishes his eternal nature. It also establishes his authority and his ownership of everything. I want to say this clearly. If God's creation and therefore his authority and his sovereignty are not established, then the rest of the Bible is meaningless and the rest of our lives are meaningless. If he was not there and he is not the creator, it takes all of the meaning and the possibility for meaning out of our lives. Third thing have to establish, God chose a people. I don't know why. I know it wasn't because the Israelites deserved it any more than we deserve salvation, but God chose the Israelites. This is how Moses put it in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Do you know what the name Israel means? It means a prince with God. God chose this pitiful people to bless them and thus to reveal himself. He wanted to reveal himself to the pagan world as an all-powerful, all-sovereign God, the only true God. And he proved that by the miracles that he worked for them. So it's important we understand God chose a people and worked through them to reveal himself. Then there is the principle of the law. God gave the law, the Ten Commandments. Why did he give the law to Moses and to the other succeeding generations? Well, God gave the law, first of all, to reveal his character, and second, 
to reveal the kind of character he expects or is calling for from us. And third, he gave the law to help us understand what sinners we are. The Bible says if you break one, you've broken all of the law. And God gave the law so that we would understand what sinners we were. But also remember that both Paul and Jesus said that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, was one of the ways we show love. Paul said it's the summation of all the law. James called it love, the royal law. And Jesus said the greatest law of all is to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The way we prove our love is by keeping God's commands. If you love someone, you don't try to steal their wife or their husband. You don't steal their property. You don't kill them. So the law was given to help show us how to love. And then, we'll say more about this in a minute, but there is salvation in the Old Testament. Contrary to what you may have been told, there are not two ways to salvation found in Scripture. The Old Testament doesn't teach salvation by keeping the commandments, by the law. Salvation has always been by faith. It was sometimes expressed by participating in the sacrificial system and in other ways but there is only one way to salvation, and that is faith in Christ. Especially, if you'll go back and read the book of Galatians and the book of Romans, particularly the fourth chapters, you will find the proof of that, that the New Testament says very clearly that salvation has always been by trusting in God. There is also the faithfulness of God shown in the Old Testament. Critical that we understand that. It undergirds the, prince, uh, undergirds the relationship that we have with him. If it were not true that God was faithful to his promises, salvation would be meaningless. We couldn't know. And then the Trinity is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's not specific it's one of those that still needs a little more unrolled to understand it fully, but the principle of the Trinity is there in the Old Testament. I, I, I know that you know or have heard that it was probably a hint about that when God said, let us make man in our own image. Now, that's not all of what it means. It means more than that, but it is at least a hint at the existence of the Trinity. If you don't think the important, that it is important to study the Old Testament, I want to remind you again, God told us to love it all. He told us to study it all, to preach it all, to teach it all, to obey it all. It was the Bible of Jesus, so the Old Testament is essential. Now, I want to hit for you rather quickly some biblical themes. I wish I had more time, but uh, don't. And again, there is the theme of creation. Again, remember Galatians chapter, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It establishes God's nature. 
it establishes his authority over all things, his sovereignty over all things, his ownership of all things. If God did not create people and all that is in the world by his word, if Genesis 1-1 is not true, then there's really no reason to believe the rest of the Bible. You don't pick, I'll believe this, and choose, I won't believe that. You don't do it. And if God did not create everything, then there's no other conclusion except that you and I are accidents. We just came out of primordial slime. And if that is the case, if you and I are only accidents that came out of the ooze somewhere, then that takes away the dignity of human beings and it takes away the fact that we're created in the image of God. It does. And besides that, if we were only accidents, we just happened. I talked to a, a, a former professor here at the science professor here at the University of Georgia. I talked to him yesterday, and he said, the human eye is enough to convince me of God's creation of all things. It's too much possibility, too, too, too little chance, rather, of that happening by chance. And, and, and if we were accidents, when did man become a soul? Nothing says that we got a soul. The Bible says God breathed into him and man became, became a living soul. Not that he got one, but he became a living soul. So if we are only accidents, at what point in our evolving did we become a soul? And if we don't have a soul, then we're certainly not in the image of God and we're not going to live eternally. So it's fundamental that we establish the principle of God's creation. Then there's the law again. God gave the Ten Commandments. In subsequent books, he gave more. The people found ways to express that. And again, the commandments give us a basis for understanding we're sinners. And the Bible is still a guide for our character. Third thing is, we need to establish the principle of covenant. It's there. A covenant means an agreement that defines a permanent relationship between parties. God promised to bless Israel. They said, okay, we'll obey you, and then they didn't. But God always remained true to his part of the covenant. That's why it's important for us to understand a covenant is not a contract. Marriage is not a contract. It is established as a covenant. But God's covenant means that at least one party is always going to be faithful. It can't be just eliminated. God will always be faithful to his part of the covenant. And there are five covenants in the Old Testament. The covenant that God made with Adam and with Noah and with Abram or Abraham 
and then the covenant he made with both Moses and Israel as a nation, and the covenant he made with David. And God has always kept his part of the covenant. God made a new covenant with us, and that's shown in the New Testament when Jesus took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the new testament, the new agreement in my blood. The agreement was sealed by his blood. If you trust my son, I will forgive your sins. I will give you eternal life. And God will not break that covenant. Then there are the principles of prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices in the Old Testament of service, of authority. Prophets spoke to people for God, and priests spoke to God for people. The king ruled over the nation as a means of communicating God's will to the people. And all three of those offices were fulfilled in the Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. That means the anointed one, the chosen one. And this chosen one was to be prophet, priest, and king to his people. We don't have time to go into that, but I think you probably understand how that would be. That leads to the principle in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system. The book of Leviticus describes most of the sacrificial system. The book of Hebrews is the New Testament's book of Leviticus. Because the book of Hebrews describes the sacrificial system and keeps saying, but we have a better covenant. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better heaven. We have a better future. Better, 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 better. And how the sacrificial system was fulfilled in the death, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So be very sure you notice that as you go through. There's the tabernacle and the temple, the places of worship. Israel believed that God dwelled there, but they couldn't confine him. They couldn't box him in. But in the, old, in the tabernacle and the temple, there were various worship artifacts, the Ark of the Covenant, and so forth. And all of them picture salvation in one way or another. And there are also parallels in the temple and and the tabernacle in their structure to the life of Jesus, to the, the ministry, the saving ministry of Jesus. The names of God. Oh, I'd love to camp here. God is described as our peace, as our healer, as our provider, and on and on and on and on and on. Many names given to God, but the most special of all is God's own name for himself, and that is the name Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Yahweh. You have to kind of cough it to say it in Hebrew, Yahweh, because, Hebrews do, or because Hebrew language doesn't have vowels. We don't know exactly how that was pronounced, but Yahweh. When Moses saw the burning bush and God gave him the commission to go back to Egypt and say, let my people go, Moses said, what's your name? I don't even know what your name is. Who am I to say is sending me here? God said, tell them my name is I am, or I am that I am. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, I am is from the Hebrew word to be. And so I am could legitimately be translated, I am who I am, I am who I was, I am who I will be. I was who I was, I was who I am, or I was who I will be. I will be who I am, I will be who I was, and I will be who I will be. Or it can be, I am whatever you need me to be when you find me. When I was at Furman, I had a bunch of liberal religion professors. I did a minor in religion, but they were liberals. And, and I honestly thought anything came out of their mouth had to be wrong. So when they started talking about God's personal name as being Yahweh, I thought, you are kidding me. You're just giving me some liberal gobbledygook. And then I came to find out, when you know Yahweh, you know him by his first name. We say, I know so-and-so by his first name. We're on a first name basis. When you know God through Jesus Christ, you know God on a first name basis, and it is Yahweh, his covenant name for himself. It's awesome to think about what's wrapped up in that name. Then there is the love of God. I know, once again, that people have told you there are two gods in the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger and justice. He killed people. He liked killing. He, he told people to kill. The God of the, the New Testament is a God of love. And so that's why many people say, I, I can't have a bipolar God. I, I, I just can't believe in that. No, there are not two gods. Wrath and love are in many ways two sides of the same coin. And the love of God is preached over and over and over in the Old Testament. Read the book of Hosea. God told Hosea, his prophet, to go and marry a prostitute. And when she went off and left him, to forgive her and have her come back. And who does that sound like? The nation of Israel and God and his love and forgiveness. Us and our unfaithfulness and his forgiveness of us. The love of God is there. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Then there's redemption. Once again, the scarlet thread. In the book of Isaiah alone, there are so many pictures of Christ and his salvation that Isaiah could be called the fifth gospel. It, it's amazing. The adoption of Israel. God adopted them. He adopts us by his grace, not because we deserve it. And then there's prophecy. Sometimes in the Old Testament, prophecy means the future. Sometimes it just means talking to people, calling them to repentance now. And I wish I had time to mention all of these more than just a mention, but the exodus from Egypt, Hebrews still think that's the greatest miracle God ever did for them. The flood where righteous Noah was saved and the world was judged, a picture of what will happen to this world, though not by the same means. It's a picture of judgment, but it's also a picture of God's promise to keep his covenant with us. Characters, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son on wood 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being sacrificed. And then there are characters like Adam and Eve and Abraham and Noah and Moses and Joseph and Samuel and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and David and Saul and Isaiah and Jeremiah. We could go on and on and on. This is going to be a really interesting study. So my encouragement to you is to hang in there. And again, I'd like to encourage you to read. Some of you have never read the Old Testament. This would be a good time, a good excuse to do it, like you needed an excuse. But read it. Try to keep up. Study the Old Testament because it reveals the faithfulness of God. Study the Old Testament because it prepared the world for Jesus. The more you understand the Old Testament, the more you will understand Jesus. And that should be important to every child of God. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son, I ask that you would pour out your blessing upon the study that these and others will do through the Old Testament.